This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. 2020 isn't going to be remembered for a lot of amazing things necessarily. It's going to be remembered as a year that a pandemic was declared and we did our best to make our way through a lot of changes in life. But at the same time, 2020 has given us an opportunity to recognize a lot of amazing efforts by individuals. And earlier today, Governor General Julie Payette announced 61 new appointees to the Order of Canada. And one of those individuals has done some incredible things and has very definite ties to London, Ontario. Please welcome Order of Canada recipient Dr. Vivian McAllister to London Live. Dr. McAllister, thank you for being here and congratulations. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, You have been doing remarkable things your entire life in medicine. You were all... You know, all set to continue on as a transplant surgeon. You'd been doing that for years and years. First off, even before we get to kind of what happened in 2006 that changed some things, but being a transplant surgeon, was that something that at the age of 10, 11, 12, you you decided you wanted to do, or did that come a little later in life? Uh, So to do transplant surgery, uh, Mike, you're asking? Yes. Actually, that's a very interesting story. I I was a family doctor in Canada, and I decided to do surgery. And um, there was an opportunity to be a fellow here in London, uh, and I applied, and I couldn't believe that I got this opportunity to work with Dr. Bill Wall and David Grant and Cal Stiller. So I lucked out um, and ended up on the, you know, the A-team. Uh, and was trained by them, and that that has really set my course in life uh, throughout everything, including the service in the military. It was that training that I received here in London that uh, really got me going. Was there a, a type of transplant surgery that you were involved in, or as a transplant surgeon, can it be almost anything? Oh, no, no, no. It's special. <laughs> um we do everything below the diaphragm. Uh, so uh, the heart guys, uh, you know, did heart and lungs, and that's above the diaphragm. So uh, Bill Wall was uh, famous for developing liver transplantation and uh, a pioneer. And it was I was lucky to be here uh, when it was still developing, and Bill was uh, making new ways to make it easier and more successful. And then at the same time here, David Grant uh, was uh, with the team, was developing intestinal transplantation. So I got trained in that too and watched how that developed. And then I went to Halifax and uh, Alan MacDonald trained me up in pancreas transplantation. So it's kidney, pancreas and liver that we really do most now here Intestinal transplantation moved to Toronto because it was such a highly specialized field that we really only needed one in the whole country to to be able to do it, and Dave Grant took it there. Um, But here uh, we did, uh, we brought pancreas transplant on stream, Pat Luke and I, and Alp Center. Um, So we we have uh, quite uh, excellent programs in kidney, pancreas, and liver transplantation here. 
It's good to know. I mean, we always know we're in good hands in terms of health in this area, but to see some of the things that have been done there, uh, that's that's remarkable. Dr. Vivian McAllister joining us, recipient of the Order of Canada. We can call him London's own, but we've got other elements to your story. One day, somebody's going to knock on your door and say, I've got this movie script idea, and uh, <laughs> we've got to do this, because you're you're going through that as a transplant surgeon, and it is still fairly early on in the 2000s. It's about 2006 when life all of a sudden takes a, a pretty right-angled turn. What happened? Well, you know, it took a right-angled turn for the whole country, uh, Mike. It, it wasn't uh, just me. Uh, we, we were in, in uh, a difficult situation. We had soldiers uh, out in Afghanistan who were being... Uh, who were targeted and uh, who were becoming injured. Uh, I was at a talk in Western, and one of my former students, who is now an anaesthetist, Dr. Brian Church, one of the anaesthetists in town and who's in the military, gave us a presentation about what was happening in Afghanistan, and I volunteered. You know, I had such a privileged life as a surgeon. I regarded it as my duty to... Uh, offer uh, because surgeons have to be right behind the soldiers when they uh, get injured and we give them the best chance to get home. So I was so privileged that it actually worked out and I had the opportunity to do it. I regard it, Mike, as a, a terrific privilege, not one that something that deserves an award. My privilege was to be there and to be part of these fantastic teams that the military had uh, and do continue to have, but that we we established in Afghanistan and brought uh, some very badly injured uh, men and women home uh, and hopefully gave them the best chance to full recovery. We're talking right now with Dr. Vivian McAllister, Order of Canada recipient, and we are talking about Dr. McAllister joining the Canadian military, and that involved you being deployed. Where did you wind up going? Well, I went wherever they wanted us to go. Uh, I was very, very fortunate in that we have a terrific division of general surgery here in London. And uh, they, I talked to the leadership and said, you know, this is what I'm going to do. Will, will, it, will it work? And they said, yeah, we'll cover you. So I was available to the military whenever they needed. So at, like at short notice, uh, I was at dinner with one of the surgeons in town and I got a call to say there's uh, we have to go to Haiti. And uh, I went with the field hospital to Haiti. Uh, and that was a, an experience in austere surgery, a surgery in austere circumstances, people who have a totally different um, standard of life uh, to us in Canada. But they're our neighbors, they're our friends. And yet we were able to, as Canadians to uh, really help. And it was a terrific experience. I went to Afghanistan, of course, several times. Uh, the way it worked in when Afghanistan was going all the time was um, we would go for two to three month deployments and we'd go once a year. Uh, so we were back and forth, back and forth uh, there uh, trying to keep that mission going. Uh, and I think we did an excellent job as a medical team. Uh, and then in, more recently, I went to um, Kabul, where we were establishing university training programs 
because they've all been destroyed by the wars there. And the, to see the academic people in Kabul, the Afghan uh, surgeons trying to get things together again was just so wonderful. You know, they, they are very experienced and strong surgeons and they develop really good training programs. And I was able to see some surgeons who'd worked down in Kandahar came up to Kabul for training and it was a great experience for me. And then our last deployment was to uh, Iraq uh, in the fight against ISIS and to see what our soldiers were able to do there uh, and to be part of the, the team to look after them was just a great privilege. You make it sound a whole lot easier than it is. You were entering some incredibly difficult situations, incredibly traumatic situations. How did you deal with that aspect of it? Well, I'm not the injured party, so, uh, you know, it's easy for me. Um, I have to, my task, uh, my fear, my only fear in all of those was that uh, maybe I wouldn't be up to the job. I wouldn't do a good job. Uh, and thankfully, I always succeeded, uh, and I'm very grateful for that. But the reason that was is because I was part of a fantastic team. I never had to worry about security. Um, you know, we went into very in insecure places, but um, Canadian forces are just the best armed forces in the world. And they looked after me, and um, I just had to do my job. And my task was to do as good a job as possible Unfortunately, I was trained so well uh, here in London that, you know, I had the right combination of, of skills and, and it worked out very well. We're talking with Dr. Vivian McAllister, recipient of the Order of Canada just today. And again, congratulations on that. Dr. McAllister, what is it like, because not many of us do this, what is it like to save somebody's life? Oh, that's totally addictive. Um, you know, the, the, if, if you are part of a team that saves somebody's life, you just want to go out and do it again. Uh, I know what uh, our first responders feel. You know, we have some terrific first responders here in southwest Ontario. They go to the scenes of crime, scenes of accidents, and they do wonderful things. But the feeling that you can extract somebody, bring them back, and give them a chance at recovery uh, is uh, totally addictive. Yeah, so I will keep doing it for the rest of my life. Well, we certainly are better off on this planet for that. Thank you so much. It's been such a privilege speaking with you. Thank you and congratulations, and please continue to do the work that you are doing. Thank you very much, Mike, and good luck to you. Keep safe. Thank you. That is Dr. Vivian McAllister. That's why we need, what, medical playing cards? What what gets the recognition, you know? Thank you to the Order of Canada for making this possible. But those are stories that, that we need to hear. The work that someone like Dr. McAllister chooses to do. Because he didn't have to, in 2006, join the Canadian military. He watched a presentation, came from a formal medical student, happened at Western, and he decides he's going to join the Canadian military, and he's going to do what he does in all kinds of different situations, from Iraq to Afghanistan to Haiti. 
being deployed in all of these conditions where you don't know what you're going to face and you're there to try and as dr McAllister says give somebody that chance at recovery that's that's what it's all about right there that's somebody who knows what it's all about this entire year has been one unlike any you could have predicted you could have been given a pen and a paper. You could have been given an old-fashioned typewriter. And you could have been asked to write something that people would not believe at the beginning of all of this, going back to February and March of 2020. No way, no way could you have come up with this. Truth is always stranger than fiction. You just can't make this up. But let's look back over this year from a political perspective. Let's look back over this one, and let's look ahead to 2021. And joining us to help with that is London North Center Liberal MP Peter Fragiscatos. Mr. Fragiscatos, how is Wednesday going? Wednesday is going just fine, Mike. How are you doing? Not too bad. We've compared what you do during a pandemic to parenting on a number of occasions on London Live, where you don't know on any given day what you're going to be hit with, and you kind of kind of have to figure it out as you go. How much of politics and governing has has that, you know, that aspect been like in 2020 where you don't know, so you just have to make the best decision at the time? Well, Mike, I've often used the analogy when asked by constituents and by others about this entire experience, especially when it came to the various program design to help individuals, to help families, to help businesses how I, as a member of Parliament, and how the government as a whole was responding. And it's about building the plane and and flying that plane at the same time, if I can uh, use that uh, kind of description for you. Uh, Unlike anything I've ever experienced, uh, certainly that's true uh, for every Canadian. We've never seen anything like this in our most challenging moment uh, since the Second World War. So if I was going to describe it in some way, Mike, I would use that analogy. And even Orville and Wilbur Wright did not do that. They they did not decide, you know, we'll just get off the ground and eh, then we'll figure out how this whole landing gear thing's going to work. They didn't do that. You don't build the plane and fly it at the same time. Mr. Franciscanos, if we go back to the beginning of this, can you take us to some of the conversations that went on when it was quickly realized we needed to have shutdowns and we needed to have some instant financial support for Canadians? What was happening? Well, if I could divide it up for you, Mike, and please call me Peter. You're uh, you're quite kind to call me Mr. Fragoscatos, but uh, I'll use the same rule I, I do with uh, constituents. Call me Peter. It's always best. Um, I'll divide it up uh, on a, in two ways. There was the, the local approach and then the national approach. And I think if you spoke to all members of Parliament, regardless of their party affiliation, they would say the same thing. So I remember it was uh, it was March, and when it became clear that Canada would have to confront COVID-19, Canada would have to put in place a COVID-19 response, I started making calls, uh, as many calls as I could, to uh, local leaders, uh, elected and unelected. I had conversations, uh, first and foremost, with the mayor, uh, with city councillors, with uh, our chief medical officer, Chris Mackey, with the heads of the hospitals. Um, that was really a priority because I wanted to understand how they were seeing things and how a local response was going to be uh, 
put in place. Uh, beyond that, though, from a national perspective, conversations quickly began around the types of supports that would be necessary to support families and to support individuals and, of course, businesses. And that required uh, a great deal of discussion uh, with uh, those in government, with colleagues who sit with me on the Federal Finance Committee. We quickly uh, convened meetings to uh, talk about what would be required uh, by way of programs uh, on that committee. Uh, That committee uh, carried out important work into the spring and the summer where we uh, advised the government on the various supports that would be necessary. Uh, Out of those meetings came programs like the CERB, like the payroll support program, uh, rent support, uh, all the various supports that uh, that you've seen put in place by the federal government. So I, I would say it, it's divided in that way, a local focus and a federal focus at the same time, Mike. It was, uh, and we, as I said before, we had to respond as quickly as we possibly could. There wasn't time to be perfect, right? There's this inclination uh, in public policymaking that you uh you cover all the possible gaps, and that's important to do. You'll never be perfect, but you have to do that in, in any time. But uh, a pandemic is, is different, right? We uh, had an emergency on our hands. Perfection would prove to be the enemy of the good. So we said we'll act with speed, and where there are gaps, we will fill those gaps later. And I think that was the right approach. So that's uh, I'm getting nostalgic now, but uh, that's, that was the approach of the previous year. London North Centre Liberal MP Peter Franciscato is joining us as we look back over 2020 and go behind the scenes on kind of what was happening as this began. And it was just, okay, let's make this available and hope that people who need it are getting it and the ones that don't need it are not taking advantage of it. When we look at things like the CERB, it was helpful for a while. We're now entering a point where we are seeing cases rise, where in Ontario, for instance, And in Quebec, we're in a lockdown situation where businesses are having to close. What do you do now? Are there any resources left to to maybe go with this again with additional assistance like the CERB or like something akin to the CERB to give a little extra? Well, those resources are still in place and will continue to be in place as long as necessary, Mike. There is... The SERP doesn't exist in its previous form, but it's uh, it's turned now into the Canada Recovery Benefit. So if uh, one has lost their job because of COVID-19, or if they've had their, uh, their income reduced by 50% because of COVID-19, then there is that support at $500 a week for up to 26 weeks. If uh, one is living with COVID-19, if they have COVID-19 and cannot work, there's $500 a week for up to two weeks that they can get. If a person needs to uh, take care of a loved one who has COVID-19 or if they need to take care of their child because the school is closed, uh, then there is uh, support, again, available at, uh, at $500 a week. And businesses that need support, we're going to continue to be there. Rent support is in place at uh, 65% of rent covered uh, by the federal government, and we've worked with the provincial government to make that happen. In lockdown situations, as we're in now, that support goes up to 90% for rent. There's payroll support up to 75% for businesses, and there is the Canada Emergency Business Account. It's a $60,000 loan, Mike, and $20,000 is forgivable if it's repaid by December 2022. So, 
these are the, the basic uh, programs that are available. There are other supports available too. And my job as a member of parliament and my office's job over the past several months has been to help individuals get access to these programs. It has been the busiest time I've ever had in this job, but it's been the most important thing I've ever done, uh, whether professionally or otherwise. Uh, it's, it's something that will remain with me for, uh, for the rest of my life. Peter, to look south, to look at the United States, they had programs that were immediately put in place. Every country has done this, but just to pick an example, and in the U.S., one of the things they were having a problem with was they were getting subsidies as business owners to pay employees, but if you didn't have employees to pay, that money would end up just going away, and, and it wasn't necessarily fitting. It was it was a round peg in a square hole. How much tweaking has had to go on in terms of programs, and are, are we at a point where you're hearing, hey, this is really helping now, or are you hearing, I still need something that fits what I'm doing in my situation better? There were changes that needed to be made. As I said before, the government needed to act quickly and not uh, sit back and and design the perfect of programs. So where I think of uh, examples uh, that uh, that stand out, programs that needed to change, I think of the, the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy, the, the payroll support program that I just talked about. Initially, it only covered 10% of, of wages uh, for uh, for businesses. Um, for their employees. That proved insufficient. Uh, but I think the government can be forgiven because we didn't know what we were exactly dealing with at the beginning. But as it became clear that the scale and scope of COVID-19 would be such that it would overwhelm the Canadian economy, and that number went up to 75%. Uh, there's other examples that uh, that stand out, uh, Mike, but I would say that one really is, is the key one. And it was the one that seized the, the finance committee that I talked about before. Uh, it's a really, uh, it's a great committee to work on, and we uh, we took that case uh, directly to the uh, the finance minister to the government, and and called for changes. And, and thankfully, the government uh, did listen. Uh, there will be many instances going forward where the government will have to uh, tailor new approaches to to meet the needs uh, of the moment. Uh, for instance, there will be businesses, and there are. There are businesses, Mike, that have recovered quite well. Uh, they're, they're back on their feet. But there's other businesses that are not on their feet, uh, far from it. And I'm thinking about hotels, I'm thinking of restaurants, and I'm thinking of the, the tourism sector. Uh, the, the government will have to continue to keep uh, supporting those businesses as long as it takes because for obvious reasons, they won't be able to bounce back from COVID-19 until this whole thing is, until we've completely planked uh, the curve. And we're, we're not there yet. I mean, vaccines are, are coming and that is, that is positive. I think that the government has done a good job in, in procuring uh, vaccines. It's now up to the provinces to, uh, to distribute. But I, I think that restaurants are, are in a very tough position as are hotels and I talked about the tourism sector too. I want to ask a question about restaurants and hotels and the tourism sector in just a moment. But even before we get to that, just the amount of money that has to be spent. There are a lot of Canadians concerned about what happens at the end of all of this or where the spending kind of comes from after a while. What can you tell us about that? Well, as far as spending concerns go, uh, trust me, I'm a, I'm a blue liberal, if you want to put it that way. Fiscal responsibility is something I take extremely seriously. 
But I think the government had no choice to respond in the way that it has. Yes, we have significantly added to our deficit. It is now in the range of close to $400 billion. Uh, the reason it has gone up so high is because of the emergency programming that has been put in place. That emergency programming is tremendously expensive. But what would be the alternative? The alternative, Mike, would be bread lines. I'm not kidding about that. This is not just hyperbole on the part of a, of a politician. Uh, economists will tell you the same thing. Uh, the governor of the Bank of Canada, when he came before us at, uh, at committee, I remember uh, him saying very clearly that were not for these various programs that have been put in place by the federal government, then the country would, you would have uh, poverty increased dramatically. You would have businesses completely collapsing and not coming back. So, you know, when I talk to restaurant owners, when I talk to others, uh, when I talk to families, uh, they are very clear that the programs that have been put in place by the federal government are staying them right now. Uh, there's no, it's not an exaggeration. Uh, I know that so there are concerns that people will have about the deficit, but we're still in a very good financial position, especially when you look at us compared to other G7 countries. Oh, we may and have I, lost. Oh, sorry, we've got you back. Oh, sorry. Um, I, did I cut out there? Just dropped out for a second. You, we missed We missed one second. So you were talking about the fact that we, you know, you've added to the deficit, but at the same time, it's not necessarily something that, uh, that you know, puts you in, in a, a dangerous mm-hmm. situation. We are in a very good financial position overall, and especially relative to other G7 countries. So if you look at where other G7 nations are, whether it is uh, Germany or whether it is the UK, uh, the US, Canada has an excellent financial position. We are in the best financial position out of the entire G7. And and as I said before, to emphasize, uh, it was either put in place expensive programs or see a Canadian economy that would completely collapse. And uh, just, just think for a moment about the consequences that would spell for the average Canadian and, and their loved ones. It was not an acceptable outcome. We had to act, and we had to put in place this programming. And we will see plans put forward for further economic growth uh, into the future. Uh, I look forward to the budget that is upcoming. And uh, once we're past the pandemic, we can begin to see sustained economic growth that will help us deal with that deficit. London North Centre Liberal MP Peter Francescato is with us. Peter, just one last thing, and it goes to the restaurant and hotel and tourism sector. One of the things that we're hearing from them is their insurance rates are becoming unbearable. They're seeing these massive rises in insurance. Anything the federal government can do there? Well, I know that there is... uh a battle taking place, if I can put it that way, it's it's now we're seeing it materialize in the courts where small businesses are uh, moving ahead and uh, trying to get uh, assistance, financial assistance from the insurance sector to cover losses in the pandemic. I know the insurance sector is, is pushing back and saying what's known as business interruption insurance does not cover uh Uh, pandemics. Uh, That's going to go back and forth. I think the government of Canada and provincial governments and municipal governments need to continue to be there for for business owners, for all Canadians. Um, Insurance costs, uh, that matter needs to be looked at uh, by the provincial government because it's uh, squarely in 
their jurisdiction like. But um, instead, you can look at it in two ways. We can uh, allow that uh, and immerse ourselves in that discussion around uh, insurance and, and debate that. But in the meantime, uh, you know, who's going to be there for the everyday Canadian? Who's going to be there for the small business owner? Uh, and and the, uh, the mother and the father trying to raise their kids. Government has always the primary responsibility of security, and that's not just physical security, that relates to economic security. The government needs to be there for people in need, and so far, I think the government has done a good job. I want to see that continue. Peter, thank you so much. Please keep safe, and we'll hope for a much better 2021 eventually. All the best. Enjoy the rest of your holidays, Mike. Best to your family. Best. Uh, let's certainly have a better 2021, and uh, nothing but the best for your listeners as well. Let's do it. That is London North Centre Liberal MP Peter Fragiscatus looking back and ahead as well. Something to look forward to. It can be pretty small. It really can. It can be something coming up tonight. It can be something coming up tomorrow. A lot of times we'll get into vacation mode, and then you can look forward to that. In a pandemic, it's difficult. And I would add, in a pandemic in southwestern Ontario, it is tougher. Because we talk about January each and every year. Because in southwestern Ontario, it has a lot of cloudy days. We are not the sunniest place in Canada. We're not, I think it's Calgary. Is that is that one of the sunniest places? Winnipeg, nah, not Winnipeg. Somewhere out in the prairies. Calgary is probably one of those front runners. San Diego, I think, in the United States, or San Diego. Uh, that's a good sunny place to be. We're not that. We get not sunny days, but instances of sunshine. And a few years ago, we got nine. Nine of them. Oh, there's the sun. That's one instance of sunshine. And we mention that sometimes. And that can make things tough. And this is a difficult time of year. There's a new Ipsos poll that we'll tell you about with regard to the mental health of Canadians. But we're lucky enough to have with us right now Christian Waugh, Associate Professor of Psychology at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, to talk about future plans and the need to have them to look forward to. Professor Waugh, thanks for taking some time for us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Let's look at where this kind of comes from, because you may think, okay, with all that's going on, I don't want to be planning something for myself. Look what just happened with our finance minister here in Ontario. He's getting lambasted for doing this. But if you're looking at, at trying to plan something for yourself, how do you do this and not feel, I don't know, selfish? Sure. Well, first of all, I don't think it's. I think it's okay to feel a little selfish when the thing that you're planning is something that's safe for you and the people you're planning it with, right? Um, but it's so so important to plan something positive to look forward to because that's how we, you know, live as humans. We wake up in the morning with something to look forward to, which motivates us to get out of bed and and do that thing throughout the day or uh, do the things that are necessary to accomplish that goal or get to that event. So it is, it is critical. So allowing yourself to um, the, that small pleasure of anticipating a positive event and recognizing how critical it can be might help you f- feel a little better about it. So having something to look forward to. We'll talk about how big or how small it, it should sure. be, but to have that, what does that do for us? 
Yeah, so it's extremely motivating, right? So when when we um, want to, to do something, there's a couple different reasons why we do it. One is maybe we're trying, we're afraid of something, so we're trying to avoid it. That's not actually as powerful or psychologically satisfying as having something to look forward to and being motivated to go get that thing, go do that thing. Um, and that motivation is what gives us that sense of purpose, um, where we have that, you know, we have meaning and purpose, and that sense of meaning and purpose allow us to feel better about ourselves, allow us to cope with stressors that especially have such high levels of uncertainty like this one does. We have seen all kinds of studies that have been done on this. What do they typically show about people that may have something to look forward to? Yeah, so we, we've shown, for example, in our lab that um, having something to look forward to after a stressor helps people recover from that stressor uh, because you're in that stressor, you're thinking about it, and then when it's, when it's over or when you have a moment of respite, it allows you to kind of replace those negative thoughts uh, about this past thing that, that you're having to deal with with positive thoughts about something that uh, is in the future. And the cool thing about positive anticipation, anticipating something in the future is that once you start, you have all that time up until that thing happens in order to allow that anticipation to build and uh, to uh, help you feel good about things in the moment. How much does it help us? You mentioned stress, but maybe mm-hmm. rebounding from a stressful situation, which yep. a lot of us feel that we're in. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's so critical because, again, part of the... Um, Part of the bad part of stress is when we feel like there's no end to it. Uh, we feel like uh, th- this thing is going to just last forever, and there's nothing we can do about it, that lack of control. And having something good to look forward to does two things for us right there. One, it gives us that sense of control that, all right, there's something in my life I can control, and I'm really motivated to look forward to it. And the other thing is it also gives you a sense that, um, that this thing may not be uh, endless, that one day this thing will be over. You know, when, the, when I finally get that vaccine or when the pandemic is over, I, I'm super excited about X, Y, and Z. And that can be very powerful to combat the endlessness of, uh, of the pandemic. We're talking with Christian Waugh, Associate Professor of Psychology at Wake Forest University in North Carolina, about having something to look forward to. So let's kind of put this into a more concrete item and you mentioned thinking ahead and saying okay i'm i'm going to do this when this is all over can it be as simple as having that exercise to say hey i i don't have the ability really to plan a trip right now and i'm not going to do that we're in a lockdown here in our province of ontario so nobody's really moving anywhere nobody's really doing anything but can we say hey when this is all over i want to blank can it be that easy uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's part of it, right? So, and I think that's a really incredibly important part of it because that'll help combat that feeling of endlessness. The, but I don't think that's enough. I think you also have to plan the everyday things that are happening right now because otherwise, if you think, oh, um, when this is over, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, uh, and then you read the news and it's like the vaccine's been delayed and this and that, then it can kind of uh, wear on uh, that one piece of positive anticipation that you have. But what can help combat that is is just anticipating things day in and day out, even no matter how small they are. Just some pieces of, of pleasure that you get uh, can help combat that bigger 
these bigger issues. Tonight I plan to sit down and have a glass of wine. Is that Perfect. enough? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially if you haven't had a glass in a while or it's particularly good wine this time or, or whatever. Something that you think, you know, um, I'm very thankful that I'm able to do this thing now. I'm very thankful that I still have um, my family around me. I'm very thankful that uh, video conferencing is a thing in 2020, um, unlike the last pandemic, right, um, that I can see people, stuff like that, and then anticipate those things that you're thankful for. And what does that do if, if we sit down? I mean, is there a method to go through? Do you, do you have to write it down? Is it enough just to take a few seconds and think about it? What would you recommend? That's a great, uh, great question. Uh, it depends on really how much you're struggling, I think. I think... Um, I think a lot of people are able to fairly, do it fairly naturally, you know, just it's have that moment where you're thinking about it or talking about it with others is a big thing, right? So if it's uh, a lot of the things that we end up anticipating are these social events, uh, you know, even if they are kind of stripped down like they are now, but sharing that and talking with other people about the thing you're anticipating can help build uh, that positive anticipation. So yes, you know, if you're looking forward to a glass of wine, maybe talk to your a partner or someone else or, you know, make a happy hour out of it where, oh, I'm excited about our happy hour glass of wine tonight, you know, that, those sorts of things can also help build it as well. But if writing it down helps, that's, that's, that's a great idea. Christian Wall joining us, Associate Professor of Psychology at Wake Forest University in North Carolina as we talk about having things to look forward to. If you are talking with somebody and, and you're realizing that they are pretty down right now. Any suggestions yeah. for how to deal with that situation when it comes to maybe providing something to look forward to? Sure. Um, just talking to them, period, about about why they might feel down. Um, and that's important, too, because we, we're talking a lot about positive anticipation right now, but it's also important to recognize how stressful and, and how many people are struggling right now. But um, as far as giving them something to look forward to, it's, it's kind of hard to give someone something to look forward to. You can only uh, just hope to remind them of the things that may be good in their lives. And, and if you do that enough in a, in a comforting uh, way, a non-judgmental way, hopefully they'll come around to see exactly what you mean. Well, Professor Wong, we really appreciate your insight and your study into this. Thanks so much for absolutely. the time today, and please keep safe. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, and you keep safe as well. That's Christian Waugh, Associate Professor of Psychology at Wake Forest University in Carolina. And if you've never tried things like this, you might look at them and say, come on, uh, I don't need that. And then you give it a shot and you say, you know, that, that actually helped a little bit. It really did. When I was feeling kind of crappy or crummy, because what are we dealing with right now? Try this. What day of the week is it? How many Sundays did you go through between December 25th and yesterday? Didn't every day feel like a Sunday? And if it's tough to figure out what day of the week it is right now, it feels like Groundhog Day, and it's going to, and that's all right. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.